0: Doing the math is so important. Like, otherwise you don't know what's my capacity and what's like my maximum capacity and what are my sales currently like. That stuff is all necessary to plan your week.
1: You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, Jr. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Jr. Flatter here with my co-host, Lucas. Hello. Hey, Lucas, I wanted to focus this week on building a practice, building a coaching practice. And I think it's really relevant to you because you're building, you're an entrepreneur yourself, building a business. And so I don't think it matters terribly whether you're selling comics or selling coaching, setting up a business has a lot of things, characteristics. So,
0: yeah. And something specifically that I've been thinking about a lot is just kind of something that we're doing here with the podcast. How do you kind of share your knowledge and, and your skills with other people as a form of marketing like youtube videos and blogs and things like that and i think that's a really helpful avenue because you end up solidifying your own thoughts on the topic and then you can potentially help other people while you know gaining the exposure that you need
1: yeah that's a good point there's a saying in the education world if you really want to learn something teach it and so by Teaching through social media or through podcasts or or anything else, you and I get better at what we do and the thing is true if you're an entrepreneur, if you want to really learn how to do something well, figure out how to teach it to somebody else. I know my coaching has gotten exponentially stronger as I teach. I spend a lot more time teaching than I spend coaching. I still have Many ongoing coaching relationships to, us to continue sharpening the saw, but or we to do a ratio of coaching versus coach training. It's all significantly more coach training. But yeah, thanks for starting us out with that. So, for the listeners and who've been listening to us for a while, or anybody's who been in our cohort for a while, you know, we talk about the arc a lot. We talk about the arc of a coaching session, we talk about the arc of a coaching relationship. And so today I'm going to introduce a third ARC, and it's the ARC of your coaching practice. And so if you envision in your mind, so you're in the upward trajectory of your brand new business, a lot of our students are starting out their coaching practices, or they're preparing to start a coaching practice or maybe thinking about it sometime into the future. And I think the ARC analogy holds up here as well as it does in coaching and coaching relationships. So if you think about starting this new business that you're starting, you think about it, does it make sense to think about it in that arc?
0: Yeah. And I think, um, something that's come up a lot of times talking to, you know, people that are starting out or they're transitioning to becoming a freelancer or an entrepreneur, lots of times it's okay. I have friends and family that are interested. How do I kind of start out with my existing network of friends and family and kind of get my first client or first sale on somebody that's outside of that circle? But just thinking about that circle, all of us have, you know, a certain amount of Facebook friends or even like Instagram or Twitter followers. Like you have your beginning circle that you can often, you know, there's somebody in that circle that is willing to pay for your coaching services, I would suspect in anybody's network, you know?
1: No, you're right. I, and that is a big growth in a business. So, so there's a couple of things I tell anybody who's thinking about starting a business, and one of them is make sure you talk to your significant other. If you have somebody in your life that's on this journey with you, you'd better talk to them because it's like bringing a third person into your relationship. The business always wants your attention It always wants more money. It's always a harmonic dissonance between work, family, and self, especially if you're working a full-time gig like you are, and you're an entrepreneur. So you're really doing service to your job, service to your family, service to your new business, and you're on the apex up. And I can tell you after 21 years in business, we're still hustling. Right. There's no real apex and then you're on the downs, the, the downward slope. You certainly do get past those days of heroic effort. I think I saw a picture of you sleeping on the floor covered in product, uh, crashing and after an all that. I know that, but it still is a great uh, vision, very representative of what it takes to build a business. Anybody that's ever, uh, road crew, you know, there's a power 10. And you, you row 10 strokes as absolutely hard as you can when you're already rowing at hundred percent, that's a good analogy for starting a business. You're doing power tens into perpetuity, but no one, no human being could sustain that forever. And so how do you get past that you know, surviving beyond heroic effort for all that's part of, part of the journey? And, you know, if you're thinking about getting into that, you better have those questions, to ask and answer from yourself. And also from those in your world, who matter to you, I know you have a young son and wife and other interests, the runner. And so are you ready to ask and answer those hard questions that come along with starting a business? And that's not even talking yet about getting yourself in front of customers. I know you just did a, an expo a couple of days ago, right? You've lived, you've lived what we're talking about several days ago, setting up a booth, selling your product. For what four five six hours
0: yeah it was like four hours
1: yeah it takes a lot of courage to do that you get out there and say hey i've got something i think would be of value to you and here's the price tag associated with that and so i think early on in the arc of a business you better decide that you're willing and able to be unapologetic about putting a price tag on whatever it is you're trying to sell whether it's a service whether it's a tangible product or a combination of both, I think what you do is a combination of both with the service, but it's also a tangible product. Are you unapologetically willing and able to go around and have that conversation literally with anyone and everyone? Hey, here's my product. Here's what I'm charging for it. Here's my Stripe. You know, put your credit card in there and Stripe. People that live and work in a service world. And I mean, service in the sense of service, uh, servant leaders, leaders, or coming from government, or coming from military, or coming from some service background, or maybe a nonprofit, a lot of them have a challenge getting their head around the idea that, oh, I have to have revenues that exceed my expenses. Gosh, I've never, I've never had to do that before. I don't know how comfortable I am doing that. So another thing is you're thinking about climbing onto this hamster wheel and running as hard as you can for as long as you can, are you willing and able to ask people to give you money for that? Unapologetically, all day, every day. I don't know. You're you're living that dream.
0: Yeah. And I think you touched on something like the mindset of, okay, this needs to generate its own money. Like, everybody has their own personal finances and you know, you might be frugal or you're, you're a good saver or you do certain things to make sure you're not going into debt. And then we also often think about like the government's budget and spending and, and those are very different from each other. Like the government spends differently than you would in your household. And it's, it's the same kind of for the business. It's like you, you, can't necessarily be as conservative. If you know that if I put $1,000 here, it's going to make $2,000 or $1,500, then you kind of have to run towards that. You can't say, oh, but I don't like spending $1,000 feels bad from your personal finance brain, you know? So it's almost like there's like this fear or this anxiety around spending money. But if you know that you're going to spend money and get a return then you kind of have to let go of that anxiety a little bit, I think.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You definitely have to invest money to make money. And most of us aren't going to go out and raise money and have investors. Most of us who are going to start our own business are going to self-fund from existing discretionary resources. And again, that goes back to talking to significant others, talking to self. Are you willing to maybe sacrifice the vacation, the money you would have put toward the vacation towards this yeah. new business? Eventually your thoughts are that you're gonna have a greater ROI than what you're right. investing. And are you able to convince self and others that this is a good investment? You know, beyond that, I think the value of the self is not non existent. And so you might very purposely say, I'm going to invest time and energy in something that I know I'm not going to get a dollar, a a gigantic dollar investment return, but it brings joy to me. It's part of myself. Some people golf, some people run, some people play music for self. You could actually choose to run your business for self. You know, at some point you might run out of discretionary funds if expenses exceed revenue for a long time. But again, that's a personal decision based that you make a couple of practical decisions, and I borrow a lot of this from Brian Elwood, our good friend, Brian Elwood, nail your ditch. You haven't read that book. I strongly recommend you do, you know, who are you selling to? You need to decide out of the 8 billion people in the world, what small minority are you going to sell to? And the more you can niche that down, as our British and Australian friends say, me, The more you niche that down, the more focused you can become. And it's a real challenge to do that because every person you say yes to, I'm going to purposely market to this niche. You're saying no to, you know, 7.999 billion people. And the way I rationalize that is I don't say no to anyone really, but I just purposely pursue that small niche. And how you create it is you just, Keep creating intersections of uniqueness. And so if you're a leadership coach, that's the first intersection. That means you're not a life coach. You could coach in that space, but you're not purposely marketing for that. You're not a business coach. You could coach in a business space, but that's not who you're marketing to. Fitness coach. So the fundamentals of coaching are all the same, but who are you selling to? Really, really important up first step.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, if you think about, you know, you're going off on your own and potentially you could have somebody hire you. Or in my particular case, I could shop my product out to a publisher. But a certain decision is, you know, this is so personal and it's it's just it's my unique brand of humor and things like that in my book. So it's like, okay, I don't even want to bother shopping it out to a publisher because I don't want to have to like package it for them or change it. But then at the same time, like you kind of have to think about it that way. Well, I didn't really do it for my first product, but the next one, I'm going to be thinking more deliberately about, okay, like if I were to publish this and it's not my book, like where is the value and where is the community and where is the niche? Like you're saying, like, you have to think about it that way, even if you're not selling it to like um, an employer or somebody that's going to go out and help you sell it. You know?
1: I think another maturation and specifically to marketing for me uh, in the last several months, has been the idea of push versus pull. Again, another book I'd bring into our conversation is fanatical prospecting you haven't read fanatical prospecting, really opened my eyes about sales. And I talk all the time about being in the 24th year of the 21st century or wherever we might be, but analog old school sales work and works a lot better than social media for the average person. We see and listen to all the influencers out there, you know, to break through that noise and get a sufficient following challenging. And I think it's rare that you're going to build a sufficient following to sell, to scale your product in any reasonable manner. I would strongly, strongly recommend. And I know, um, Jacob, your brother beat me up for years over this, cause I, oh, I, I need to be, build a social media platform. We need to build a presence. I need this. No, he would calmly tell me you need to go back to traditional sales, get a channel traditional sales established. And then think about social media. Probably for three or four years was like, no, that's wrong. You're old school. I'm the boomer. I know better. But yeah, that old school analog push works a lot better than pull. And push is picking up the phone and calling people. Push is getting out of your chair and going to meet with people push sales or going to conferences and meeting people you can go to virtual conferences and engage virtually but it's you pushing your product out rather than sitting and waiting for somebody to find you in the blogosphere and get attracted to you and buy you Okay, you nodding your head i know you and i've gone through this journey with google ads and facebook ads and linkedin and I'm on all those places, don't get me wrong, but I've had my greatest success pushing and not the pull. Now, at some point in the maturation of my business, that might happen, but it's not here yet. And I've probably been in the social media space for five years and I can clearly say 99.9% of revenue that I've experienced has come from somebody I met through a referral or another human being through a human-to-human engagement outside of social media. What have your experiences been?
0: I guess the way that I think about it now is um, you've got, like, your message and your narrative, the story that you're telling, and if I'm face-to-face with somebody, it's probably easier to, like, not only, like, articulate that through a conversation, but also the trust and the the connection that we're going to make face-to-face is is a lot more natural and a lot more effective. And so if I have this amazing narrative that like communicates all of that, then I might say, okay, I'm gonna pump it up on social media because ultimately it's gonna get diluted and it's not gonna be as powerful. But but if you accept like I'm playing a numbers game and I'm gonna reach a thousand people and ten of them are going to respond. Versus if I'm in person and there's 10 people I want to sell to, like, four or five of them, you know, like, there's a different level of how effective the message is and, and thus, like, how powerful it's going to be. So you just have to play the numbers game on social media, especially if it's not paid advertisement, it's just organic, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think in that path, niching is even more important. Is that message resonating with that Sliver of the population. And we haven't even talked yet about, and I think it's important to talk about getting paid. How are you going to charge people and how are they going to pay you? There's a lot of different platforms out there. Uh, one that pops immediately to mind in the freelance market is Upwork. I know neither you or I are on Upwork. I have a platform out there, but I've never earned a penny of revenue through it. You can get your own Stripe account and push out Stripe landing pages. You're going to pay a fee to Stripe as well. I think in the digital world and the freelance world, you're going to pay somebody to help in that, you know, some third party to help you do that. But you have to figure out which of those you want and which, which works for you and have that ready because if you have a conversation they say, yeah, I want some of what you got, how much does it cost? And then here's my credit card or virtually, you know, how do I pay you? That's not an insignificant process. And I know you've you've struggled with this on the side of our coaching business and coach training business. So, you know, talk to us a little bit about your experiences creating that payment process.
0: Yeah, so, and this kind of goes back to the, like the sweat equity that we kind of touched on earlier. It's like, if somebody says like, oh, I'm going to set up a payment platform and you can go on this site and click to pay and then it's going to go here and then you're going to track it this way. You might be spending like a significant amount of money to set that up, or you kind of have to look at these services and say, like, which services are powerful enough to get me going at my level of, you know, technical competence, or just like competence at setting up, you know, IT services. So for me, I yeah, I I had um, a site similar to the two roads site that we had set up. I had learned enough through you know going through that process to kind of repeat it for myself and then yeah definitely using stripe and then in person using square which is just like a card reader um i think that makes it a little easier less friction like i see that at farmers markets all the time where people don't carry around cash anymore so if you're going to be in person having like a square pay or some like point of sale system is really really helpful but yeah, ultimately, like you have to have that level of trust. So if you just say like, oh, I'm just going to collect credit cards. Don't worry about it. I'll, I'll charge it. And then, you know, I'll get rid of the information. Like people aren't going to want to purchase things on your site, you know. So having like a, a trusted third party.
1: Yeah, you have to make it painless and, and efficient. So how about third party providers? We have third party admin, third party graphics. Third party payment. If I'm starting a business at day zero and I'm planning my process meet, how much of that would you recommend as third party? How much do you keep in house? What processes do you keep in house? What processes do you outsource?
0: Yeah, and I think it's largely what your skill set and so when you're in a business, you think about like what's my core competency, like what's something that the business is set up to excel in versus what are we just doing because it's, you know, we have to do it as a business. So like for me, I want to do a lot of like the Canva design stuff, like anything aesthetic, like I want my hands on. I don't necessarily think like it was like part of my core competency to set up the website and everything. Like that was more just, okay, like I know how to do this and I'm going to do it. And maybe in the future I would get help with that. But yeah, I guess what are my skills that I'm coming into the business with that, you know, like somebody would actually pay you for. And then you can think about like, how much am I saving by doing this myself versus do I have to learn a whole bunch of skills or do I know how to do it? And I just don't really want to do it or, you know, and then Something I think that I I would definitely 100% outsource in my next project is just like the actual like, okay, I've designed the product, like everything I've like been hands on from front to back, but I don't need to like be hands on like printing the book, you know, like that was more of like a learning like, oh, let's see how this goes kind of thing. But yeah, next time, definitely not. That was just like a huge time sink.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and uh, last thing before we jump into actual delivery, you know, how much of a social media presence do you really need to do business in the 21st century? If you're going to use push sales, you don't need any social media presence. If you're going to start, we teach people all the time about AIR campaign, advice, information, or referral campaign, talking human to human. Hey, I'm starting a new business. It's a coaching business. What advice do you have for me? What information do I need that I don't have? And who should I talk to next? If you do that aggressively with no social media problem, without even a website, but you have a way for them to pay you and you know what you want to charge an hour or per relationship. We always strongly recommend you charge per relationship, not per hour, because it's a coaching relationship. It's not a coaching hour. You don't need a website. What I feel a lot of new entrepreneurs doing is so much preparing to do business and so very little doing business. So every hour you spend preparing to do business, you should really be asking yourselves, should I be actually out selling rather than preparing to sell? And a website's another one of those times thing that you're preparing to sell and you're not actually selling. Let's talk about delivery. So I'm going to focus on coaching. You can just focus on generic delivery or whatever you'd like. So you've learned to be a coach. And you decide you're going to go into a coaching business. And now we're talking, let's focus for a few minutes on delivery. Anybody who's a coach knows how to deliver a coaching session, knows probably if you've had a good coach trainer, how to deliver a coaching relationship, you know, how to set up a coaching agreement, pre-coaching, then the actual delivery as a business owner, so you may have been coaching in a sponsored environment where you didn't have to find your customers and you didn't have to set up your calendar invites and, and all of that stuff that you're now as a entrepreneur. So we talked very briefly about niching, niching, but another thing I borrowed from Brian, Brian Elwood in nailing your niche is what's your QER? What's your quantifiable end result that you're delivering to the leader that has laid down their money for your coaching? And so, spend some time thinking about what your QER is, but also ensure that in your delivery, you're delivering it. And so, we have several QERs at 2RL, the Credly badges that we give. Uh, we help build houses of leadership, so you have a blueprint for your house of leadership when you're done. You might have your coaching and accreditation, you might have your mentor coaching, uh, any number of QERs we deliver. If you're going to try to sell to uh, that 0.0001% of the population, part of your sales should focus on that QR, but also your delivery. Certainly, am I delivering what I promised I was going to deliver?
0: You think about it in, in terms of the niche. It's like the niche is the people that I'm trying to reach with my product or service. And the qer or quantifiable end result it's like what value are these particular people going to receive like so what's the beginning state and what's the end state and and how do we get them there and based on that particular community and i guess just an example that i was just talking to um my nephew oliver about was like you open up a video game nowadays and you open it up and there's nothing in it except for the disc or the cartridge. When we were kids, you would open it up and there'd be a map and an instruction manual and stickers and all this other stuff. And that is to kind of build this fantasy and build this perception that you're going to have an adventure or it's larger than just like the physical artifact. But now like that QER, it's still there. It's in the game though. Now the games are advanced enough to kind of encompass that experience that would be, you know, additional materials in the box. So I guess like thinking about it that way, like, am I delivering everything like through the coaching session or do I need to include additional materials or, or is it even my social media presence and my blogs and my videos are part of that? So I'm not using it to promote myself necessarily, but to like package the value and give that to the to the leader that I'm coaching.
1: No, that's great. You talked about artifact and we talked briefly about building a human to human relationship. And so certainly coach to leader and you want a human to human relationship. And what tools are you using? What artifacts are you using in delivery? And are are they a purposeful part of you QER? So people who come through our programs walk away with an individual mission statement, they walk away with their credly badges which we mentioned already. they walk away with a 30-year vision of where they're going, personally and professionally, shared with and co-created with significant others and the leaders' life. So there's tons of artifacts that we purposely build that world for them. We purposely use the same metaphors to create that mental model or Yeah, this is where we are together as leader and coach. So are you building that world for them? I love that analogy that you brought in from the gaming world. So another thing to think about in delivery is your business life is probably going to be a third, a third, and a third, a third delivering, a third pursuing new business and a third administering your business and so. When you think about very practical things like hourly rate or coaching relationship rate, how many coaching relationships can you do a month? And how much money do you need to earn a month? How much money do you want to earn a month? So the average work year is 2000 hours. I round up to make the math easy. 40 hour week times, 50 weeks is 2000 hours. Give yourself two weeks off. You might choose to take four weeks off it. So that's 48 times. 40. If you divide a third, a third, and a third, and then get around up a little bit, you're going to work 700 hours a year. Earning, you're going to work 2,100 hours a year, probably, if an entrepreneur, probably a lot more. But let's say 700 hours a year that you're going to earn money. And if you have a number in your head of, I need to earn this to sustain my family, to sustain my household, let's say it's $200,000 a year, because you're going to pay your own taxes. You're going to an accountant you're going to pay maybe a lawyer you're going to pay for insurances so all that has to go into that number and so you divide seven into two hundred thousand and that's the number you need to earn per hour so if it's a 12-hour relationship then that's the cost of the relationship and so are you doing that now as part of your delivery it's not probably as big a number as people think it needs to be
0: doing the math is so important like otherwise you don't know what's my capacity and what's like my maximum capacity and what are my sales currently? Like that stuff is all necessary to plan your week, you know? And I think that's another one of those analysis paralysis things where you could look at an MBA book or like, you know, websites that are, Investopedia has stuff that can help you with that. But ultimately I, I would say that like, That kind of needs to happen concurrent with like your first delivery or your first real sale, because you need to get the dollars so that you're modeling something accurately. If it's all just numbers and the model's not based on any concrete evidence, then you're going to spend a whole lot of time like speculating, like, and not necessarily like moving forward, I think.
1: Yeah. You're not going to work 700 hours your first year either. Yeah, it is absolutely necessary. So... A lot of us probably need a lily pad strategy. to a lily pad from full-time employment to full-time entrepreneurship, and you need a mindful plan to get you from working full-time for somebody else to working full-time for yourself. And so as you write your business plan, your business plan should include, if you're going to have to lily pad from full revenue and somebody else just dime to full revenue on your own dime, you know, what does that look like? So doing the math, if I want to earn 200K a year and I'm going to work 700 hours in that year, like 285 an hour, which might give you a little bit of sticker shock, but if you're a good coach, you're going to earn 285 an hour. You could probably earn a lot more of that as you get your reputation built, get your practice built. And when you think about delivery, I know from my own experiences, Managing my energy now is as important as managing my work. And as your calendar fills up and you need to earn more money, you have to charge a higher rate. You're not going to run faster on the hamster wheel. So 285 is probably your starting point. If you're just getting started in business and you're lily patty and you don't, you're not anticipating working 700 hours that first year, say 200 hours a year at a hundred dollars an hour just to get the revenue flowing and then build it up to 285 as you really pat out, each of us is going to have to build our own plan. So last thing I'll say on delivery is, are you adding an adjective to your coaching? So the fundamentals you and I teach, or we teach coaches are relevant across the entirety of coaching, no matter what adjective you might put on the front of that. And actually you need to be careful, thoughtful, I should say. As you put an adjective on the front of your coaching, I'm a leadership coach, largely. The coach training we provide tends to focus on leadership coaching. Every organization you're in requires leadership, whether it's nonprofit, for-profit, government, non-government, military, non-military, you need leadership. If you're a life coach, if you're a business coach, choose to put one of those adjectives. We have people that do DE&I coaching. I have a gentleman that I'm working with whose equity focuses on equity, you can put any adjective you want on the front of your coaching title, and it's a way of niching, actually, could be another way of differentiating yourself in the marketplace. That's great, but just be very mindful about you're doing it on purpose and you're not overly coloring your coaching with that adjective. So if you, if I hired you as a business coach. We would talk about it in the coaching agreement and then i would have expectations as we go through our coaching we're probably going to talk about how to build a business you're going to give me tools you're going to introduce me to people that are focused on business but at the same time you're not giving business advice that's not what a coach does you're not guiding them to water and saying here's something you absolutely must do that's not what a coach does there are other people in the world your coaching can help them discover it. To some extent, it goes back to the coach-leader relationship. Are you keeping that intact? Any last thoughts on delivery as we move ahead?
0: I like to think about that adjective, coaching, a lot because like you said, it's, it's almost, um, in a way, it can be like antithetical to the whole idea of coaching if, if you're kind of like, okay, we're going to be talking about these things. I think maybe like um, a more balanced approach, maybe um, in that initial coaching agreement, if I'm like a fitness coach, um, let's talk about what your fitness goals are. um, What are some of the barriers now? Because maybe I'm a fitness coach and this particular leader or client, they have an issue with, it's like all about the health and, and fitness. But then another person it could be about their time and their work family balance and so depending on like where the leader is, I think they're gonna have different outcomes, different QERs. So it's really like I'm going to market it in a particular way because I wanna reach my niche. But in that first conversation, we kind of have to settle on like, okay, what are the what are your goals? What is success? Maybe you even have like some particular QERs that are just specific to that adjective. So if it's fitness, maybe we have more artifacts that are workout related and schedule related. But if I'm a leadership coach, those aren't going to be relevant. So I guess I think about it in terms of like, what's the framework around the coaching versus like, I don't want to change my coaching in the session necessarily.
1: Yeah, I think fitness coaching is a good example of putting an adjective in front of coaching and for those of us who might be new to our podcast, there is no connection between an athletic coach and a leadership coach, or the kind of coaching you and I teach or practice. But a fitness coach, they have a very specific outcome, and that is your personal fitness that they're coaching with you. And they're probably not coaching you on how to do the exercises, but certainly, exercise is probably a tool that they employ. Diet is a tool um, they are almost certainly employed. And so a fitness coach, who's a leadership coach like you and I are, uh, have to be very thoughtful about approaching that line between coaching and advising. Uh, and it probably almost certainly requires a very strong upfront conversation about uh, pre-coaching and the agreement. If they here are the tools I use and they're going to come up regularly. Here's the accountability that I participate in. It's going to come up regularly to the greatest extent possible. I'm going to keep my coaching hat on. Then you're going to discover the path to your fitness that works for you. All right. Finally, managing your business, managing your practice. Several thoughts here, and there's some very practical thought. Now, we talked about a couple of them and a couple of them, I think potentially you can outsource it's bookkeeping. Are you going to keep your own book? If you're a one-person shop and you're a sole proprietor of a one-person in business, still something you have to do. When I engage in a coaching relationship, I usually engage in 12 sessions, sometimes every week, sometimes every other week. And the simple act of counting up to 12 is burdensome for me. It might be relatively simple for the rest of the world, but. You know, I'm trying to keep in track of where I'm coaching this dozen people in this particular, uh, B2B engagement and where am I with this one? And where am I with this one? And it's not simple. So it gets complex pretty quickly. It's something that you need to be very purposeful about marketing. How are you getting your product out there? How are you getting your voice out there? I strongly, strongly recommend a strong mix of old school and new school. For most of us, old school is the pass the revenue, real world connection, which is a human being. Maybe social media you can build over time, but the average person that's starting a business, it's going to be old school selling. Insurances, you know, different localities, different cities, different states, different countries have different requirements for the insurances that you need as a coach, as a business owner. I strongly recommend some level of liability insurance, irrespective of who you're engaged with and where you're doing it, because the main reason you incorporate is to protect you, the individual, and your family. Think about how do you create that protection? A corporation is one way, but liability insurance, over our 21 years in business, we've been sued a couple of times in what I would call nuisance, lofty, no standing, uh, but nonetheless. To defend yourself costs five or six or $700, $700 an hour. And so it's not free. Taxes. You know, what are the taxes you need to be setting aside and build into your rate? A CRM, right? A customer. Uh, what's the CRM stand for? I use the word all the time. I don't even know what the acronym stands for.
0: Customer Relationship Management.
1: So just managing a CRM, if it's an Excel spreadsheet, if you'd use a third party CRM, that takes a lot of time. So looking back to this third, a third, and third, you're going to be lucky if you get away with just a third of your work time managing your business. And oftentimes it's the part that really crushes us and doesn't allow us to go do the other two, the uh finding and delivery.
0: Yeah. And I guess my, my first thought that comes to my head is like you're – capacity or your personal ability or interest in one of these things that doesn't necessarily um correlate to how necessary it is so oh i'm not interested in accounting i'm not interested in inventory i'm not interested in insurance well that's just as necessary for your business as it is for a fortune 500 even if you're tiny and you have no capacity for it so yeah like what you said about the 12 sessions like something really small like that, just keeping track of, like if you're making things, keeping track of your inventory, like it's ultimately, no matter how sophisticated your tool is, if you're thinking about like, you know, a CRM versus Excel or versus paper, it requires just as much thought and planning. So you might as well like, okay, like even if I'm working in Excel, like let's make like a clear process. So every time you create new inventory you're tracking it or every time you make a sale you're tracking it or you know otherwise i operate only in this room like the books never leave this room and then i'm constantly counting how many do i have how many have i gotten rid of you know and i think what you mentioned about it kind of like eating up more of your time it will eat up more of your time if you don't set up the planning correctly and you know this is my procedure no matter how basic it is it's a piece of paper But there is a procedure and then I'm moving on to a system and then I'm moving on to maybe even having um, a third party or somebody that is actually helping me with it. You can't just hand it to them without your own procedure or else they're not going to know like any of the particulars of your circumstances. So I would say like, yeah, definitely think about those things like your, the business that you're going to be in five years or 10 years, you know?
1: Yeah. Can you scale well, thing I'll mention And then, uh, you got to drop off time blocking help and being mindful help. So I time block a lot. So I color code my calendar and different activities have different colors. Executive function, which I would consider bookkeeping and keeping track. That's an executive function. So it would have a different color. Leadership's a different color. Delivery is a different color. So am I seeing enough of the right colors? And mindfulness comes to mind because when I'm in that block, if I'm in an executive function block, I'm not thinking about selling and I'm not wishing I was selling, even though my mind goes there. I'm saying to myself, stay in this mindfulness play, stay in executive function. When we get the sales in another hour, then you can go sell. When we're in delivery, when I'm delivering coaching, when I'm delivering training, push selling away push management away and educate, train. So mindfulness is a huge part of this as well. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.